he is arrested and he is on trial. The Sanhedrin is trying him for this specifically was the charges where he was speaking against the holy place, which is the temple. He was speaking against Moses and they charged him with blaspheming God. Now the last, we got through the toughest part of Stephen's speech last week. So this week won't be near as, as uh, heady as that, that kind of was because basically Stephen just takes this opportunity and it's a huge long sermon to go through Israel's history and to show exactly that that uh, God's activity has not always been, has never been just in one location. They were saying God only works in the temple. God can only be worshipped in the temple. God can only be worshipped in this holy land. Stephen takes the opportunity. He goes through the life of Abraham, the life of Moses, the life of Joseph. And he's trying to prove, and he does prove, three things. One, God's activity has never been in just one location ever in the history of Israel. Number two, God has not just been worshipped in one location forever in the history of Israel. And and number three, that the fathers of Israel have always rejected the messengers that God has sent. We saw that uh, Abraham, God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, everywhere Abraham went, God was with him, God spoke to him, God gave him commands, God uh, gave him promises everywhere he went. God was with Joseph when his brothers turned on him and sent him to Egypt. God was with him in Egypt while the brothers were going through a famine in the Holy Land. And... Uh, also, we talked about Moses. God sent Moses as a deliverer. The people rejected him until God appeared to him on, in, on holy ground at the burning bush in the desert. So God's people were in Egypt. Moses was out in the desert somewhere, and holy ground was wherever God was. Okay. The point of all that, if all that is just flying right over your head because you weren't here last week or whatever, the point of the whole thing so far is that Stephen is trying to show them that God's presence is always with His people, not in some temple, not on some spot of ground, rather than that spot of ground. It's always where His people are, where His people meet. And so uh, He says that you know it, it was, He was with all. He goes, He's with Abraham, He's with Joseph, He's with all these people. And so God's presence has always been with them, and His worship has always been wherever God's people are. And so that's what He's doing. He's trying to show them that that uh, in their own history they are not being consistent with their own history because the Jews of that day were had Stephen on trial saying uh, you know you're you're not allowed to defile this holy place you know by saying Jesus is the Messiah and that he can uh, he's the one who's come and and to save his people uh, you're saying that we no longer have to have sacrifices in the temple you're saying we no longer have to have this have to have that and basically they were losing their position. So that's kind of the background. Is there any questions on any of that? Any statements? Anything that I missed? Anything that you think we should go over? So we're going to finish Stephen's sermon today. There's only one more little part of it, and then Stephen starts pointing the finger, and that's where it's going to get really interesting. Uh, the, the fi- if we start in verse 44, um, the final thing is that... Uh, 
He's going to talk about the tabernacle. So, so far he's talked about Abraham. He's talked about Joseph. He's talked about Moses. And he showed them that God has always been active and he doesn't need a particular land to do it in. He doesn't need a particular temple to do it in. He's always been with his people. And what he's going to show in verse 44 here, he's going to say, look, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion which he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus, that's a little confusing, into the possession of the Gentiles whom God drove out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David. He's saying in verse 44, he's saying, now when y'all were walking around in the wilderness for 40 years, where was the holy place? It was where they were, but what did they have to do? They moved from one place, and they would set up their tents, and they would set up what? An altar. The, well, yes, but the altar was called the tabernacle. That's right. Anybody, the tabernacle was like a movable tent. If you read in Exodus, at the end of Exodus, God showed Moses, this is what I want you to build. And he told them how to set up camp where the tabernacle of God would be right in the middle and all their tents and all their by clan and by house would be around it. But the tabernacle was where God and man met. Moses would go, sometimes it's called the tent of meeting. Go, Moses would go into the tent of meeting. The glory cloud would fall down upon the tent. And they would know that God was meeting with man. The tent of meeting was where the sacrifices were made. The whole time that Israel was in the wilderness wandering back and forth, different places, the tabernacle was was the holy place, so to speak. It's where God met with His people. Now, there wasn't a specific location because they moved. I mean, for 40 years, they were moving. And so everywhere they went, the holy place went. And so the holy place was with them. The place where God and man meet was with them the whole time. And what's interesting here is, I think, I think Stephen is pointing to this fact, God gave the specifications of the tabernacle exactly. He told Moses, I want you to build it exactly like I'm going to show you. And if you look over in Hebrews, I think it's chapter 8, it says that God showed Moses the pattern of the tabernacle based on the heavenly reality of the tabernacle. What that means is God gave Moses the pattern of the tabernacle based upon God's dwelling place in heaven. Okay, so, so to speak. And so what he's saying here is God commanded that a tabernacle, tabernacle be built. Now, what we see is that God never commanded that a temple be built. Did you know that? Did any of y'all know that? God never commanded David. When, when the time of David came, he looked around. By this time, the tabernacle, which was a tent, it was made out of animal skins dyed purple and red and, you know, all these different things. The tabernacle was 450 years old. And so you can imagine what this tent looked like being 450 years old. It's probably old and faded and tattered. And David says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to build you a house, God. I'm going to build you a house. And God said, no, I, you're not going to build me a house. He said, you get everything ready. I'm going to allow your son to build me a house, Solomon. And so Solomon was allowed to build God a house. 
But even then, when Solomon built it, he made sure, and Stephen's going to quote this, he says, God does not dwell in temples made of hands. Solomon said that when he built the temple. But now these Jewish men who were opposing Jesus and opposing the church and opposing all that they stood for, they had idolized the temple. You see? Even back when Solomon says God doesn't dwell there. God doesn't dwell in places made with hands. They were saying, oh yes, the only place you can come and see God is here in this temple. And so you can't say that Jesus has brought God to all men now because you've got to come to our temple. You've got to do our sacrifices. You've got to do our, our stuff. Do you see how that still happens today? I mean, I know y'all ain't sacrificing animals and nothing like that. I, I hope you ain't anyway. If you are, give me some of the deer meat because I need some. I like some in my freezer. But... Uh, we still think we still think that God, you know, you got to have these walls, you know, you got to have the steeple on this church, you got to have the this is where God dwells and you're coming to meet God. Now, there's a real sense that when we gather together in worship, Jesus said where two or three are gathered together, that I'll be there in the midst. But is it because we're in this awesome building? Why is it that God dwells in our midst when we come to worship him? Say it again. Because he dwells within us. And He dwells where His people are. He dwells with His people. He dwells in us, and when we gather together, He is in the midst. He inhabits the praise of His people. And so, wherever His people meet, there were times, that even, I mean, just in our church. I mean, not to mention, I'm not saying it's just here either. It's whatever church, wherever people are meeting. People of God are meeting today. That's where God's in. He's God is in the midst of them. There were times when we met in cotton gin. We all around, some of y'all around, we met in cotton gin, College Hill, and different places. I mean, it is, huh? Met outside when the building was being done, building being made. And, and all those places, I remember them coming and what they called them big, I don't know, it's it like a big, I guess it was a horse trough or something. Uh, I remember them bringing that into, the, into this uh, cotton gin and baptizing somebody in a cotton gin and a horse trough or something. I don't know what it was. It was some kind of big thing. You, it's not about, nobody, nobody at that time thought... We can't, this cotton gin is not holy enough. It's not holy to meet here. It's not, God doesn't dwell in temples made of hands. God doesn't dwell in this particular spot as opposed to that particular spot. He dwells wherever his people are. I mean, he dwells everywhere. He's all, all present at all the time. But he meets his people in worship. Let's say it that way. That'd be better. He meets his people in worship wherever they come together to worship. Does that make sense? You with me? That's what Stephen's trying to get across. And you can tell that these guys are getting really ticked off. Because what, what's threatening? What are, they, what are they about to lose? If Stephen gets his way and he's proven right, what are they going to lose? They're going to lose their authority. They're going to lose a lot of money. Did you know, you know those tables Jesus was flipping over in the temple? You know what they were for? When you came into the temple on Passover day, you had to buy a sacrifice. I mean, you had to buy some pigeons from them or buy a lamb from them or buy or whatever from them. Now, people would bring their own lambs, but they had to be perfect and spotless. And who decided if it was spotless? The priest. They'd bring it to the priest. And so what would the priest do? Uh, there's a spot on the underside way over there. You're going to have to buy one of ours. <laughs> you see what was happening? They were going to lose their lifestyle, their livelihood, their worship, their, their religion, their ritual, their authority. They were going to lose everything. And so you could see them getting madder and madder and madder and madder that this was going on. 
So he says that God, God never ever said, I'm going to be there, but I'm not going to be here. He always says, I'm going to be with uh, my people. In verse 46 and 47, uh, first of all, let me go back and explain that. 45, which did our fathers that came after, he's talking about the tabernacle. They had the tabernacle all the way up until when the fathers came after and brought in with Joseph, uh, Joshua. Joshua. Jesus is the Anglicanized word of Joshua. He's talking about Joshua here. Okay, You ever heard somebody that's kind of Hebrew, one of those Hebrew Zionist people, they'll say his name really isn't Jesus, it's Yeshua. You know, you ever heard the name Yeshua? It's Joshua. That's that's what his name is. So the, the translators translate, translated it Jesus, but he's talking about Joshua here. Brought in with Joshua into the possession of the Gentiles. It's talking about when Joshua was taking the land, uh, they brought the tabernacle into the land with them as as Joshua was conquering and they had the tabernacle that's all they had all the way up until the time of David verse 46 who found favor favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for for God for the God of Jacob God, David desired to make a temple for the God of Jacob but Solomon built him a house we already talked about that now here 48 and 49 and 50 Stephen is going to quote what Solomon said in 1 Kings chapter 8 he said, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? 49 and 50 is quoting Isaiah. 48 is quoting Solomon in 1 Kings. Okay? So he is proving to them that their whole history is going against what they're saying right now. They're saying, no, Jesus is not the Messiah. We reject Him. You have to have the temple. You have to have the sacrifices. You have to have the ritual. You have to have all this stuff. Stephen goes through this huge speech, and the whole point of his speech is to tell them, look, your whole history is saying that you guys are wrong. And not only that, is that all of your forefathers rejected every message messenger that God has ever sent and you're doing exactly the same thing by rejecting Jesus whom God sent. Okay? Understand? Wow. Any questions? Some Say something. Alright. Don't say something. I don't care. <laughs> Alright. Now the speech is over. Okay? That, I know it. Going through his sermon is, is long and arduous. And even if you just read straight through seven, it's so easy to get lost in it. And st- what is he talking about? Okay, but that ends the sermon. Now he's going to point his finger at these people and he's going to give them the point. Okay? Here's the point. Verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked. And now remember, he's on trial talking to the most powerful people in Jerusalem. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, and they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and the murderers? Okay, verse 51, you just like your fathers. You just like, now, what an insult. Can you imagine 
the whole the whole religion of these people is based on everything that their fathers had done Abraham Isaac Jacob uh, all these things David Solomon the temple the sacrifices they believe that we're right before God just because we're in the line of these men whom God had chosen we're descendants of them and here comes here comes Stephen this guy he's not even an apostle he's just the guy that was helping with the food although he was preaching and doing miracles and all those kind of things as well but here they come they're thinking now before this they had arrested Peter they'd arrested John remember they'd arrested all the apostles and in in the end they ended up letting them go both times you know go ahead you know the first time they told them don't preach anymore we're just gonna let you go the second time remember Gamaliel stood up in the council and he said look if this is of God we're just you know we just need to let them go and let, let whatever happens happens well now Stephen this little face of an angel Stephen basically told them your whole history is a lie he said, the men that God sent, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, you guys, your fathers, rejected every messenger that God has ever sent. Your uncircumcised, uncircumcised circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Back then it meant that you were right before God. He said, you're uncircumcised of heart. He's saying, you guys aren't right with God. Your fathers weren't right with God. Your whole culture has never been right with God. And every time God has sent a prophet to you, you killed it. Every time God has sent a message to you, you persecuted it. And they were, I mean, you could imagine the shock on their faces when they were thinking, they walked into this room thinking, well, we're going to show this little guy something. He's going to stop preaching this thing. And now it's pointed to them that their whole way of life is based on lies. Their whole way of life is based on disobedience. Yes, God was with Abraham and God was Moses and Joseph and all those things. But the people around them, the people of Israel, never ever... You would be hard-pressed to look through your Old Testament and find a place where Israel actually obeyed God. Everywhere they disobeyed. When Moses came, you know, when they accepted Moses, he led them out of Egypt. What was the first thing that happened? God gave Moses commands and what he walked down the mountain and what was going on? Golden calf. You know, they had done a, what the, every At every instance of Israel's, uh, Israel's life, they were falling into idolatry. They were going after other gods. They were going after other things. All the way through David's life. All the way through... First Kings, Second Kings. If you look at it, it was it was completely it was falling into idolatry, repenting, coming back to God, falling into idolatry, repenting, coming back to God. You'd be hard pressed to find anywhere where they were actually obedient to God. God has always had His people. There was always men that were obedient. There were always prophets that were coming and said, "Look, God said y'all have to turn. God said y'all have to you know do these things," and they were always rejected. Jeremiah spent his whole life telling the people. Babylon is coming because of our sin. God's going to turn us over to Babylon. And the people rejected it. Threw him in a system. Sent him down to Egypt. They rejected it. Isaiah came saying both to the north and the south, southern kingdom. God's going to come and judge you if you don't turn from your sin. They rejected it. He ended up getting cut in half. And so all, all through history, God has sent his people to Israel saying, look, this is what God says. And all through history, they have they have denied him, disobeyed him. And so 
What we see here is that he says, you uncircumcised, you resisting the Holy Spirit, uh, you have always killed God's messengers. And he says, and now you're doing exactly, you're, the prophets always pointed to the coming of the Holy One, the just one. That's Jesus. And now you guys, pointing his finger at these guys right here, he's saying, you guys are betrayers and murderers of the just one, the Messiah, the righteous one. And so you can imagine how what was going through their minds. And then the icing on the cake, verse 53, he says, who have, he's talking about you, these, these Jewish Sanhedrin, you have received the law by the disposition of, disposition of angels and have not kept it. He says, you ain't even keeping the own law that you're accusing me of, uh, of denying. So basically, in about three verses, it took him, what, 50 verses to go through the history of Israel. And then in three verses, he says, you know what? You guys don't even keep your own law. You guys have always rejected the people that God has sent to you. And you guys are basically uncircumcised and not right with God. Now, what do you think their response is going to be? Oh, man. It gets, it gets worse and worse. It gets worse and worse. They just go nuts. But understand that the response that we get here is the same response you're going to get today. It's no different. I mean, it's no different. When you, when you come and you say, you know, you're not right with God, you don't even have to, even if I don't point out, oh, you got this sin and that sin and that sin, you know. If I just say, look, unless you're in Christ, you're not right with God. How dare you say that I'm not right with God? How dare, who are you to tell me that? All I said was, if you're not in Christ, you're not right with God. Uh, the same reaction that Stephen gets is the same reaction that we get all the time. And it's a normal reaction. It's not a right reaction. It's a sinful reaction, but it is a normal reaction. Because our hearts are wicked. And our sinful selves are prideful. And we want what we want when we want it. And we don't want nobody to tell us we're wrong. And that's just the way we are. And I'm sure, surely, y'all have run into that, haven't you? So try to tell somebody about Jesus, even in the kindest way possible, and it blows up all in your face. Now, when you, when you walk away from that, what we're going to see at the, in the end of this, as we hurry up to get to it, is that Stephen gets killed. He gets persecuted, stoned to death, and killed. But in the moment of his death, he is more at peace, I think, than anybody that I've ever seen. And that's the one thing that really sticks out to me in this story is that when, when I tell somebody about Christ and they blow up in my face or melt down or, or whatever and just call you name. I mean, just think of the worst case scenario. You know, most of the time it's just rejection. But think of just the worst case if something awful happens and you just get yelled at or, or whatever. You know, most of us aren't going to be getting our head cut off, hopefully, in the near future. But uh, whatever that worst case scenario is, how do you feel afterward? You feel like, man, I really screwed that up. I really, man, what, I'm doing what you, you know, you feel bad. You feel, God, why, why did you let this happen? Why are you doing this to me? That Stephen was about to lose his life. And as this, I don't know if you've ever seen, there's some, some videos of, well, anyway. But when you, being stoned to death is one of the worst ways to, to die. I mean, basically, you just pelted with rocks. Put you in a little hole where you can't run. And they throw rocks at you till you die. 
I mean, I don't, I can't, it would take a long time. It would take a long time to die that way. But as the rocks were hitting him, he was at peace and he was, he was asking God to forgive the people that were stoning him. I mean, I can't imagine somebody so at peace with what they've said, their testimony, and their life, their relationship with Christ, that even as they were being stoned to death, even as the worst possible thing could happen to them was going on, you could say, you could say, you know, I'm ready to come and see you, Christ, and forgive these people for what they're doing. I mean, how at peace he was with them. Is, is anything y'all want to say? I mean, any questions about anything? I mean, I'm just talking. Yeah. I promise not to bite your head off like I did my last week. All right. Okay, so moving on then. He said, you're rejecting the law. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. Now, there's, there's, I can't even understand. That's literally what it says. Now, some of the translations will say they gnashed their teeth at him. But it literally says they gnashed their teeth on him. I don't know what that means. I mean, it's like they ran up and bit him, or I would, I would think it would be a little bit more aggressive than your typical. They just really, I mean, just were really just, yeah, I mean, just overwhelmed with. I, I mean, I, I at first blush when I just read through it and I didn't catch the fact that it said they gnashed their teeth on him. I was thinking, you know, like my mom used to talk to you through your teeth. Don't you ever get, yeah. you know, <laughs> don't you dare. You know, you don't move your teeth, but you talk. That's that's how that's how you do it when you're in public and you don't want nobody to know that you're you're really, you know, in church. You know, you're not, my my dad would. Grab my, he'd grab my arm so hard it would cut the blood flow off. Said, if you move one more time, I will break you. Yeah. So, and so, uh, some of y'all laughing. Y'all done done that to your kid, I know. Um, but they, they were, they were mad. I mean, they were, they were mad, and they were attacking. Uh, not certain if they were physically attacking yet, but the language here—you you just can't get around it. They were gnashing their teeth on him. They were, they were, so, they were, they were angry. I mean, furious. They were not just angry. Like, boy, who you think you? They weren't just angry. I mean, it was like it's like a flying into just an incoherent rage. Right. You know, just. A, insanity going on in their minds. And look what Stephen does. Like, see, I would be, you know, I would be either running or I would be, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't do that. But anyway, it says, but he being full of, they would have stoned me earlier because I probably made a stupid joke or something. But he being full of the Holy Ghost looked up steadfastly into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God or standing at the right hand of God and said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Now, before we look at what they did, they're getting angrier and angrier. And I just picture them heading towards him. 
And all of a sudden, he's maybe maybe taking. A, I'm just this is my imagination, but maybe he's taking a step back or two, and he looks up, and he's not just speaking words here. He actually sees this vision of heaven open. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, why is that important? Didn't didn't the, the prophet and New Testament author say Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us? Why is he standing? He's fixing to accept Peter into heaven, Stephen into heaven. That's definitely true. That's definitely true. And it, it's also it's also like Stephen is on trial. And to call witnesses, they would have to come and stand with Stephen. They would have to come and stand in the midst with him. And it's almost like Jesus is his witness. You know, it's almost like I don't know if the people I don't I don't know if the people see this vision. I don't, I don't think that they do, just based on what it says. But he says this is Stephen saying this out loud, and they can hear him. He's saying, "Look, it's, he saw the, the 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 glory of God. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And what he said was, look what he said. He said." Uh, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Who is the Son of Man? Jesus. Yeah, we know that it's Jesus. But who would a first century Jewish religious leader think the Son of Man is? Yes, he would think he's God a Father. But this I've told you all a million times, you've been in this class over here. Who's the Son of Man? Help me out, Dean. The Messiah from what passage? It's in Daniel chapter 7. It says, let me flip over. A lot of y'all wasn't here when we talked about, we went through. Uh, <coughs> let me flip over and find it. I want, I want to read it to you. I don't want to misquote it or nothing. I believe it's Daniel 7, uh, 13. Yeah, look, I'm going to read it to you. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It says... This is Daniel's vision. He said, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like a son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him, his dominion everlasting, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall never be destroyed. What is Stephen, who is Stephen saying he's seeing at the right hand of the Father? He's seeing this son of man, this this son of man who was supposed to uh, ascend to the ancient of days, the father. That's exactly what Jesus did. When he ascended, he went to the father and he was given a kingdom that will never pass away. He said, all authority and power is given unto me when he ascended into heaven. And so Stephen's backing up on his heels. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the father. And he says, look, I see the son of man at the right hand of the father. He was saying, I see the fulfillment of Daniel chapter seven right here in the midst of this Jesus Christ is the son of man who has ascended to the ancient of days and it's him who has been given the kingdom and so he was saying all this he was he was basically telling these religious leaders who were about to get him he was saying look I see in heaven that Daniel's prophecy has been fulfilled and Jesus is standing at the right hand of the father just where Daniel said the son of man would be and so he says I see the son of man standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, when they heard this, they understood exactly what he meant because no longer are they just gnashing teeth. Look what it says. It says, Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. 
They cried out with a loud voice and they put their fingers in their ears so they wouldn't have to hear what he was saying. Now, what kind of response is that? He says, look, I see the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. The kingdom has come and Jesus has received this dominion and they ran at him with their fingers in their ears so they wouldn't have to hear what he was saying. They were responding to truth by saying, I don't care. I'm not going to listen to it. They weren't listening to his argument. They weren't applying scripture to his argument. They weren't searching their hearts. They weren't searching the Bible. They said, you know what? I just don't want to listen to it anymore. We're going to get rid of you. They said, we just don't want to hear it anymore. It was not too long ago. Somebody told um, somebody told us. They were like, ain't, ain't going to be no preaching in my house. You know, and it's not about the the problem is not about, you know, well, I don't want, you know, I'm not sure if I believe that or I'm not sure if it's true. I'm not sure if you can really say I I just don't want it in here. You understand? I don't want to hear it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't want it around me. I don't want they put their fingers in their ears and that says nanny, nanny, boo, boo. I'm not going to listen to it. I'm not going to listen to it. And they ran at him all at once. Now, remember, it's 70 of them. And there's 70 guys with their fingers in their ears running at little Stephen. Remember, face of an angel, Stephen. They're running at him, and all he's doing is looking up into heaven and telling them what he sees in the vision. All he's doing is describing who this Jesus is, and they're after it. They're after him. And so it says, as we end up, it says, and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid, the witnesses were the ones who cast the first stone. That was part of the law. And the witnesses <coughs> laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. We'll talk about him a whole lot in this book. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, who was in saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It was Stephen who was calling upon God as they were stoning him. And he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down, cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, what I want you to see is we went through this whole long sermon that he did. And I know it was tough getting through it. uh, But he was telling them, listen, you guys are in line with all these people that have rejected God all of this time. He got all the way to the end and he told them, he said, look, you guys have rejected God's Holy One. And then he took scripture and said, look, I see the Son of Man, quoting Daniel, standing at the right hand of the Father. And they took stones to kill him. They didn't care about his truth. They just wanted him gone. And they drug him out of the city and they put him in a hole and they started throwing rocks at him. And as each rock is hitting him in the head or in the body, wherever it hit him, as each rock is hitting him, he looks up and it says, and he says, he says, he calls upon God and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He is excited. Now, this is just received a vision of God, of the son of man standing at the right hand of the father. He is at perfect peace. 
through all of this. Remember it said that he had a face like an angel. They looked at him as they brought him in trial. He had a face like an angel through his whole sermon. And now even at his death, he's not sorry for the things that he said. He's not sorry for the witness that he gave. He's not any of that. He said, I've done what I was supposed to do. And he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he is so much at peace that he is showing us his heart in the fact that he is able to say, Lord, don't even charge them with what they're doing right now. Now, Don't even even lay this at their charge. Now, if it was me, you know, I'd be looking up from the pit and saying, you know, bow, Joe, I saw that. You're going to hell, boy. (laughs) Hitting me, you know. I would be, you know, I would be bringing down God's curse on them. How dare you? I've just told you the truth. I've done exactly what God told me to do. God's going to condemn you for what you're doing. You, You can imagine what I would be doing. Stephen prays for them as they're murdering him. Prays for their forgiveness. Praise. I mean, he was at perfect peace with the fact that I'm about to die, that I'm about to die for preaching Jesus, for living for Jesus. I'm about to die because I have proclaimed him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he was okay with that. And he I was think okay. It's significant that also because of his relationship with with Jesus, it didn't say that he fell and died. He fell asleep. Because, and I, I think that's significant because those of us who believe in Christ will never die. You okay. Know, we're, we're to be absent with Right. And, right. And I just, I think that's really, really significant right there that it just said he fell asleep. Yeah, he fell asleep. Sometimes it'll say he gave up his ghost, gave up the spirit. <coughs> but I want to show you two things, then we'll go. Stephen was at perfect peace with what he had chosen. He chose to live for Christ. He chose to preach Christ. And he had an opportunity. Remember, Peter and John didn't back down. The apostles didn't back down when they were arrested. Um, And so they were both let go. But Stephen didn't back down when he was arrested. But he was at peace with the fact, I mean, he might have thought, well, they're just going to let me go. He might have thought whatever, but he was at peace with the fact that I'm going to die today. I'm going to die at a gruesome, awful death. He was at peace knowing God is going to receive my spirit. He was at peace not holding the charge against the people that were killing him. And what we're going to see as we look at Acts Chapter 8 next week, the first 24 verses, I've already got the outline done. I'll send it to you this week. We're going to see that God intended for Stephen to die. God God didn't make them stone him. I'm not saying that. But God used Stephen's death to scatter the church away from Jerusalem. And so they started preaching to Judea and Samaria, just like he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Up to this point, the only witnesses there were were in Jerusalem. If you wanted to hear about Jesus, you had to come to Jerusalem. That was the only place Jesus was being preached. But after the death of Stephen, they're going to scatter. And Jesus is going to start being preached in Judea and Samaria. And then when we run up on Paul, 
in uh, Acts chapter 9, it's going to go to the ends of the earth. You see what I'm, see the point? The point was he lived for Christ. He died for Christ. God used him in, in miraculous ways. And God used his testimony and his suffering to bring, to give victory to the church and to bring a whole host of people. All of Samaria is going to believe the gospel because of this one man's death. This one man's sacrifice. Okay? Does that make sense? Is there any questions? We got done a little early today because, you know, we did, the, we did the big, huge, long part last week. Why do you think the disciples didn't come to the council or whatever? Where were they at while they were... I'm assuming, I'm assuming that they were just still out preaching and teaching. I mean, it doesn't really it doesn't really say. The problem Stephen ran into was the apostles were preaching and teaching in the temple complex, and so people were gathering all around them, you know, thousands and thousands. And we saw in that previous chapter that the Sanhedrin decided just to let them let them go, you know, let them do their thing. And if it's not of God, it's going to come to nothing. Stephen, on the other hand, was in charge of ministering food to the widows and stuff, and he was going to house to house. He was also going from synagogue to synagogue, helping those people that were in the synagogue. And while he was there, it says that he was preaching Christ and he was being opposed by the synagogue leaders. And so when they brought him on trial, um, I'm assuming that the synagogue leaders, you know, it was because of their opposition. And it says that he, they brought false witnesses against Stephen, just like they did the others. But I don't know why they didn't. I mean, these aren't, these aren't, uh, when we talk about trials, you know, you're thinking like the OJ trial or whatever. It's like, you know, your family go. And, you know, these weren't those kind of trials. They were more like inquisitions where like, uh, you're going to meet behind closed doors. Us 70 guys are going to grill you about what you're doing to we don't like your answer, we're going to throw you in jail. Well, they, they end up not liking his answer so much that they end up killing him. Uh, but it wasn't a thing like, well, we're going to let your family come sit with you. It wasn't that kind of trial. That makes sense? That makes sense? So the apostles in the church may very well have been right outside in the courtyard because they were in the same spot that Peter and John had been You know when they were brought in from... So the, the whole church might have just been meeting right outside. And you mean imagine... Uh, it only took this one event to scatter them. We see that in the first couple of verses of chapter 8. It's a great persecution arose. Uh, not just like before, but a violent persecution arose at Stephen's death. So they were probably around close when they, when they saw this guy getting drugged past them outside the city and stoned to death. Uh, so it was, it was pretty awful. Did that answer your question? Is there any other questions? You can ask anything. Look, I, I tell my youth this all the time. Anytime, at any time, no matter if it's about this or not, if you ever have any questions about, you know, so-and-so at work brought this up and I don't know what that, you know, those are, that's stuff that I love to talk about. So we can, we can pause from these lessons and, and talk about something that's important or anytime that y'all get ready. I mean, it, it, you just have to, I don't know all the answers, but I love looking for them. So if, if there's anything that we need to talk about or anything that we can, uh, uh, you can just take, we'll take the opportunity to do so. Does anybody have anything to say? Any questions? So as Christians, we can look at this as an example. When we go through trials and tribulations in our own life, and we can know by this is proof that we will suffer, or we can suffer, that we might 
I mean, like these guys that were beheaded by, you know, I mean, that, I think sometimes when people don't know the Lord, they go, well, if you can die just like I can die, and you can suffer, and I'll suffer, then why should I need your God if He's not going to protect me from this pain? Yeah. Well, and not only this, I think you can learn it from this, but Jesus said point blank with no ambiguity. He said, in this life, you will have suffering. He said, they will drag... This right here, what's happened to Stephen was foretold by Christ. He said, they will drag you from the synagogue and they will... Your own family will hate you. Your mother will turn against sister and daughter and you know all that's going to turn against... So the reality is that God... I think God more often than not uses suffering to uh, to advance his kingdom. I've said it a million times, and uh, and a lot of people in for the past four or five hundred years have said it as well. Sometimes the best thing for the church, I'm talking about the church universal, is is some good old suffering. Uh, now I don't want to suffer, you know. Like uh, if they come knocking on my door, I'm not going to be like, "Well, this is going to be good," you know. I'm going to be just like y'all, you know. I'm going to be. Uh, it ain't going to be good for me, and I ain't going to like it. Uh, but the reality is that you know, right now, especially in America, the church is mostly filled with just people claiming to know Jesus that don't really know Jesus. You know, and I'm not the one to go pointing fingers and saying you are and you ain't. But the reality is, if there was some persecution going on, uh, it would be a lot less. I mean, if there was something to be lost by saying I know Jesus, be a lot less people hollering I know Jesus. Makes sense. Uh, the greatest growth. This is a fact. The greatest growth the church ever experienced was in the first 300 years. From the time of Jesus till the peace of the church in 313 when Constantine passed the, the Edict of Milan, which made Christianity illegal. Uh, the, the greatest growth the church ever had was those first 300 years when it was illegal to be a Christian. Hmm. That was the most growth that the church ever endured when it was illegal. And you would be persecuted for being a Christian. And so even throughout history, when you see people come against the church and things happen, you know, the Inquisition, uh, the, the Reformation, and when it was all kind of things go on, the greatest growth that you always see in the church of Jesus Christ happens when it's cost something to be part of the church. I think it was Tertullian was a guy about 400 A.D. said that you've probably heard it before. He said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church it's just the way it's the way that it, it's the way that it happens uh, statistic versus just statistic but I've heard this week just to nail in just how small we are as far as true believers the church itself uh, I've heard a statistic